Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Today on the show, we're going to cover the 1994 classic True Lies. I do want to give a little disclaimer. I am on some meds right now, and it's just kind of the fun life I lead, trying different antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications to see if I can get my uh, depression symptoms in order. And luckily, the last couple of meds I've taken have made me super twitchy and also as nauseous as I've ever been, but I can't actually throw up when I go to do so. I just dry heave, even though I know that there is stuff in my stomach that I could easily expel. Doesn't matter. Just wanted to let you know, I'm going to be a little twitchy. My hands are going to be doing this. I've been doing a ton of this, like playing with my chin and shit. I'm trying to cut down on it and keep it in control, but I just wanted to warn you so you didn't feel like this whole video, you were like annoyed that something was going on. Cause like, I'm also like tapping my feet a lot. And so my head's probably going to be bouncing a little bit. But let's get into True Lies. So it was released on July 15th, 1994, and it was directed by, written by, and produced by James Cameron. He also directed, we'll just say directed, I don't know for sure that he wrote and produced these movies as well, but he also directed The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, which is one that, much like True Lies, is not available on streaming typically and it's not available for digital purchase and you have to basically seek out the physical media to be able to watch it at certain points. I mean, sometimes they'll come available online, but a lot of times they're just not available at all. And so he also did Terminator 2 from 1991. He did Titanic, which I mean, say what you will about it, it was an immensely successful movie, and it wasn't like the worst movie I've ever seen. I just don't think it's as great as everybody acts like it is. And he also did the Avatar movies, and I'm very underwhelmed by those Avatar movies, but or I, at least the first one, I didn't see the second one, because going based on the momentum from the first one, I was like, yeah, I think I'm good. And for the score, we have composer Brad Fidel. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I didn't really find a lot of notable compositions by him. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Hopefully people will yell at me in the comments and tell me how wrong I am and how great he is. But he, he did a bunch of other James Cameron works, and I didn't feel like just listing those movies over again. So forgive me. For the cast, we have... Arnold Schwarzenegger, who plays Harry Tasker, and he was in most of the Terminator movies. I think the only one he wasn't actually in at all was Terminator Salvation, and that is one of the two I've never seen. I've never seen Terminator 3 either, and I've gathered that that one's pretty terrible. He was in The Running Man, which is a pretty ridiculous movie, but it's pretty enjoyable. It's entertaining. He was in Predator, previously covered on this podcast, and he was also in the original Total Recall from 1990, which was remade to star, I think it was Colin Farrell, and I have not really heard good or bad about that remake. Like, I don't know if it's a particularly great or terrible remake, I, I couldn't tell you, but it's, it it's ridiculous. Like, I mean, there are a lot of good people in the movie, and I, I want to... I want to check it out sometime. And then we have Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays Helen Tasker. And she was in multiple Halloween movies spanning across six decades. And I, I'll, I'll list out the, you know, I'll probably show them on the screen or whatever. But like, um, she was in so fucking many of them. Like, I mean, she was in Halloween, the original from 78. She was in. Halloween 2 from 81, I believe it was. She was in Halloween H2O from maybe 1998, 97? No, it would have been 98 because it was 20 years later. Okay. She was in 
Halloween Resurrection. And then she was in Halloween, which was a reboot direct sequel to the original Halloween from 1978. She was in Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. And that is... I mean, it's it's a lot to take in. She's been in a lot of those movies, and th- they vary in quality. I I mean, a lot of people bitch about the new ones, and they say they're not as good as they should be. But it's like, because I know just how bad the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth ones are, and I'll I will you know fight to the death anybody who tries to actually tell me that Halloween 3 is like a good movie like get the fuck out of here anyway she was also in everything everywhere all at once and I need to check that one out I think she might have won an Oscar for that movie I'm not sure I can't remember I don't really keep track but it's always exciting to hear that somebody has won an award and you know especially if they deserve it and she was also in A Fish Called Wanda, and I could never really get into this movie. I didn't, I don't know, I, I always was told when I was younger that it was one I needed to check out. It was very funny, and I just, I don't get it. Like, I don't I don't have that same feeling like everybody else does. Like, I, I just, I, I'm not there. So, then we have Tom Arnold, who plays Albert Gibb Gibson, and he was an Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. I absolutely love his brief scene in Austin Powers. It is so funny to me. And it is just like the sight gags, the double entendres, just all of the stuff working together. It, it really is one of the funniest scenes in my mind in movies. Like it's, it's fucking perfect. It's, it's got everything that I could ask for. And he he was also in Tom Arnold. He was in a bunch of movies that I don't give a flying fuck about seeing because they're Tom Arnold movies. And I'll be honest with you, he doesn't exactly have like this stellar record with me for making great movies. So anyway, we also have Art Malik who played Salim Abu Aziz in this one. And he was also, I know him from The Living Daylights, which was a James Bond movie. It was the first Timothy Dalton movie. I believe that would have been 87. And that one was okay. It was, I would say, better than License to Kill, which is the only other one Timothy Dalton did. And it's just, it was just an okay movie, though. Like, as far as Bond movies go, it was pretty forgettable, honestly. Like, that's my biggest gripe, is it's like, do something memorable as Bond. You know what I mean? But Timothy Dalton was way too quiet. I'm I'm going off on a tangent. I've already talked about this. I believe it was my seventh episode. Please check it out. It's all about James Bond. And I'm sure it's fucking terrible now because it's been so long and it was so early in my recordings. Anyway, so then we have Bill Paxton, who plays Simon. He was in Aliens. He was in... And Aliens, by the way, is a great fucking sequel. That's how sequels should be. I really fucking love Aliens. I love Alien, I think, a little bit more. But it really is fucking spectacular. Like, he, Cameron really did a fucking great job with that movie. And then Bill Paxton was also in Tombstone, which is one of the greatest westerns of all time, in my opinion. Val Kilmer is amazing in it. Kurt Russell is amazing in it. I really enjoy Tombstone a lot. I always remember there was a story, I think like my sister, her class, I don't remember what grade she would have been in, but she would have, like she went on a field trip to go see Tombstone in theaters. And I'm like, what? Like, why would you take children to like if, if I'm not mistaken, that movie's rated R. I thought, anyway. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. But it's just, there's a lot of graphic content. And she would have been, I can't remember what year Tombstone came out, but it would have been like 93. She would have been like 10 years old. Like, come the fuck on. Anywho, Apollo 13, another Bill Paxton movie. He, I, I, He's not really a standout in that movie. Obviously, Tom Hanks steals the show. You've got, I think it's um, Kevin Bacon, and I 
I can't remember who else is in that, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Last but not least for Bill Paxton is Twister with Helen Hunt, and that movie was like a huge deal when it came out. I remember everybody was raving about the special effects. I've seen the special effects more recently, and they still look pretty decent if you like adjust it for you know, looking through the lens of like, okay, this is like a mid to late 90s movie and effects weren't that good. It looks good based on that, but that's all I can really say. And the last person on my cast list is Eliza Dushku, and I'll never know for sure if I'm saying her name right. I should like Google it and see if I can hear her. I love to like look up celebrity names and, like, say, how do you pronounce this? And then, like, I realize, oh, it's a good idea to, why don't we search, like, late-night show talk show appearances where they introduce them, but they always cut that part out on YouTube. It's awesome when I can find a video where they actually introduce themselves because there's no way they're pronouncing it wrong, and it's fucking wonderful. So, anywho, she, was, she plays Dana Tasker, and... She was in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, previously covered on this podcast, and honestly, that one hasn't really stood the test of time well, and it's also got way too many in-jokes in it to really be that great, but it's still pretty solid. So I've got one casting note, and that is Jodie Foster was originally cast as Helen Tasker, but was forced to turn down the role because she was signed to play the lead in Nell from 1994. The part then went to Jamie Lee Curtis. I remember Nell is a ridiculous movie. It's about like this, this woman. I don't remember if she like lives with her mother or something, but like they're like super secluded somewhere. And I think it's like Jeff Bridges is like, he's trying to figure out what her story is. And she has like her own language and, all sorts of weird shit. Like, I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't remember much of the movie, but it was bizarre. Okay, so for a plot synopsis, we have a fearless, globe trotting, terrorist battling secret agent has his life turned upside down when he discovers his wife might be having an affair with a used car salesman while terrorists smuggle nuclear warheads into the United States. Boy, oh boy, there's no way this could be bad, all right? So, the tagline of this movie is, when he said, I do, he never said what he did. That's, that's fucking terrible. Like, that's an awful tagline, but I, I, like, I say that, but I also couldn't think of anything better, so, I mean, I guess people get paid to make taglines, and... That's just the way it is. So let's just dive right into the fucking plot of this movie. So I ripped this DVD. As I mentioned, it's not really available digitally. It's sometimes available on subscription streaming services, but not always. And in this case, it was not available. So I had to rip the DVD to my computer and then I had to transfer the MP4 file to a flash drive because... I just, it's the way I have to do it. It's like, if I, the only reason I don't like physical discs is that I use my PlayStation 4 for watching DVDs and Blu-rays, and I only really ever use it for that. So it's like, whenever I have to watch a DVD or a Blu-ray on it, I basically, it's like I turn it on, and it's like I haven't used it in months, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, there's a system update. You can't do literally anything with this system until you fucking update this software. And it's like, God fucking damn it. So anyway, that's that's my annoyance with physical discs. I don't have anything particular against them. And from what I've read, they're actually capable of so much more than streaming. But my big thing is I can't see super well, so it doesn't really hurt me too much to lose quality. I really just want to see the movie. I don't really care. So, I couldn't remember much about True Lies when I went to watch it this time. A few key scenes stuck out in my head, but overall the plot was a pretty big blur. I just 
I mean, there's definitely noteworthy scenes that it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. So we open up the film at this snowy mansion and a bunch of people are showing up there and Arnold comes in by way of some kind of frozen waterway and he's going to infiltrate the place and it's, you know, he's a secret agent. So that's something to be understood going forward. It's he's like a spy. So then Arnold, uh, I should mention Arnold's character's name is Harry and he he's going into this mansion. You don't really know, like the the waterway is very confusing that he comes in. It's like, is it a river? Is it a pond, a lake? What? But it, it like butts right up to this mansion. But it's like, it's not like any other waterfront property. Like you don't, you don't build a house like two feet from the fucking water or, you know, like not even two feet, like right up against the water. I mean, that's fucking ridiculous. Anyway, so he's talking to Tom Arnold who plays his accomplice Gib on the radio and, and Gib behaves much like every other Tom Arnold character that you usually see him play. Like he acts like he's doing and saying funny things based on his expression and stuff. But I guess I just don't get the jokes and maybe they're just not for me. So Harry puts a Chekhov's gun outside in the form of a small explosive device. Intuitively speaking, I am sure that this bomb will come back later in a significant way because I can't remember the last time I saw someone in a movie set up a bomb and that bomb didn't blow up later on in the movie, you know? So it it just, it fucking, it is what it is. So Harry gets inside the house and he's trying to hobnob and blend with the crowd. And I feel like he's calling a ton of attention to himself, like unnecessary attention. Maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know. On that note, I'd like to mention that picking a six and a half foot tall dude with an Austrian accent and just that he can't change his voice at at any time. It's, it's probably not the best route to go when hiring spies, let's be honest. So, like, literally every person he encounters while working would remember him, especially if he interacted with them at all. Like, if he talked to them or said anything, it's like he, he would not be able to get away from it. So he talks with a few different people who don't know who he is, and then he goes upstairs to this second floor balcony and then climbs up to the next floor, I guess. It's not really clear why they wouldn't confine the party to the first floor to make security easier. What business could the average guest have upstairs? Like, what are they doing on these stairs? Like, they're acting like they're coming and going from another part of the party, but there's nothing going on up there that you can tell. But of course, Harry just waltzes right up the steps that people are inexplicably hanging out on, for some fucking reason, and he's able to do what he needs to do with this computer or what have you. There are all of these guards outside the mansion keeping watch, and they keep showing them. There's a lot of typical spy movie shit. Harry has his guys in a van somewhere nearby. Apparently, Harry works for something called the Omega Sector, which is presumably a fictional government spy agency. Harry has to get into a computer upstairs and it just seems super easy to get to and to log on to despite holding secret stuff and having every reason to have security measures above and beyond what it does. I mean, it's just basically got a login and it's like, okay, that's it. You've got no security like leading up to getting to this fucking room even. I don't know. So of, of course, this computer has to have like a super old foreign language operating system. It kind of, it. I, I love how in especially older movies when they show computers, they don't look like normal desktop computers ever look, you know? I mean, like I remember when my parents got a computer in I think the early 90s, it was like, it ha- it had a certain look and it's like, it was basically just like a desktop, but it was like a window and there were icons like checkered all over. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but like it, it just, it looks a certain way and you just never see that in these movies. And it's just very 
unusual. So Harry sets up the computer to be hacked into by his team remotely, and he leaves the room, and shortly after he leaves, some men go upstairs to investigate what he's done, and now the guards have discovered that someone has broken in from the fact that the ice is disturbed outside where Harry originally came in. I would have, I don't know, I, it seems a little odd that this is like the way that they're like, oh yes, it must have been a spy breaking into this facility because this ice is disturbed and it's like, maybe, I guess. So, I, I couldn't really tell with that ice. It, was that some, it's like, I, I'm still baffled. Like, I, I don't know what this waterway is. It doesn't make any sense. So, Harry's dancing with this woman was actually the main girl from Wayne's World. I looked her up, but wouldn't you know it? I forgot to put it in my notes. I don't remember what her name is. What can you do? She's this Persian art dealer named Juno Skinner, but she's clearly going to be a bad guy because there's this indescribable quality she has with the way she looks and acts that just give off bad guy vibes, you know? And so... Gib is urging Harry to get out of Dodge because the guards are clearly on to him, but Harry is overconfident and keeps dancing around, and it's like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Like, are you that cocky? So as he's going outside to leave, a guard asks him for his invitation, and Harry says, here's my invitation, and he just he uses this cigarette case to detonate the bomb that he planted earlier, the Chekhov's gun thing. And it's like, not like this. Okay, like this moment would be infinitely cooler if Harry didn't say a word or break his stride and just hit the detonator as the man asked him for his invitation. But there has to be this cheeseball spy thriller comment accompanying it. So it, it just desperately wants to be James Bondish. I don't know. It's very strange. Like I, they they want this really to play as James Bond. So it just seems like he could have held off on detonating and called less attention to himself as well. I mean, he probably could have taken this guy out even, but I don't know. Maybe the situation was more dire than I realized. So now Harry's on the run and he immobilizes a couple of Dobermans. And I've got to say... I'm not buying that just hitting their heads together. Like, they're running at him, and they jump up, and he smashes their heads together, and they're just incapacitated. And it's... I don't know that I'm buying that. Like, most dogs, they're not going to get knocked down that easily. So anyway, and of course, you know, there's a lot of gunfire, and Gibb and company have to pick Harry up after he runs through the snow-covered landscape, and... He's shooting or getting shot at by a bunch of fucking guys. And of course they make it. And later on, Gibb drops Harry off at home after giving him all of his identification and documents for what I assume are his real life. But I guess it could be for his next mission. It's not really clear, but honestly, who gives a shit? So he almost forgets his wedding ring before he goes inside. And he greets his wife, who is asleep in bed, and man, Jamie Lee Curtis was the perfect choice for this fucking role. She plays it exactly the way she should. And the next morning, Harry gives this unenthused, you know, he gives his unenthused daughter, Dana, played by a young Eliza Dushku, a snow globe. And by the way, a snow globe might be one of the most useless things, gifts, whatever, out there. Like, the attention span you give one is, like, the amount of time it takes for you to lose interest in one rivals that of a three-year-old being given a set of plain beige curtains for their birthday. I mean, who gives a shit about fucking snow globes? So Harry's got this whole cover as a salesman because his family can't know what he really does for a living. It's top secret and all that. He's, of course, out of touch with his wife, Helen, who, as I mentioned, is played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who seemingly has a lonely housewife thing going on, even though she does work. She makes a joke that she slept with someone to get a better price on something, and Harry doesn't even acknowledge it or 
register it, I don't think, at all. And I can't imagine being so fucking checked out when your job probably requires a lot of attention to detail like this. So it's strange to me, but I guess like you, you turn that part of yourself off when you're home and that's what you do. So, all right. So Gib comes by the house and shows Harry a pair of glasses that when he puts them on shows live video from a hidden camera in his living room. Through the sunglasses, Harry sees Dana steal some money from a coat before leaving to hang out with a questionable friend on a crotch rocket. But it's important to note that literally none of these home issues are truly resolved or even addressed by the end of this film. I'm going I'm to be completely frank with you. Of course, Harry worries about the kind of kid he's raising and how he's not there enough to influence her because he's married to his work, basically. And Harry and Gib go to work and they go through all of their state-of-the-art procedures to get in. And there are all these x-rays and checks and whatnot. Gibbs suggests that despite Dana only being 14, she's probably not a virgin and hypothesizes that she stole the money to potentially pay for an abortion. He says this to Harry, her father. And I'm like, who is this humor for? What kind of person would joke about that? Like, Harry's clearly upset. Like, he knows that she's up to no good, but like he probably wasn't even considering that. And it's like, why the fuck would you say that to somebody anyway? So when they finally get through all of the security, we see Charlton Heston who plays their boss and he's got an eye patch, which means I can only assume he's going to turn out to be a bad guy because it would just make way too much sense for that to happen. Post movie edit though. I, I unless I miss something, Charlton Heston did not turn out to be evil, so that's a win for monocular folks everywhere. And I just, I love to see it, you know? I mean, we need better representations in media. That's all I'm going to say. By the way, Charlton Heston is uncredited in this movie, and I know that's something that's frowned upon by, I think, the Screen Actors Guild, for whatever reason, they they want all of their actors to be credited properly and to actually get all of that stuff. And it's it's kind of wild. I mean, is there some reason that you would choose to go this route? Do you not get paid if you do this? I Did he owe James Cameron a favor? I don't really know. They're trying to figure out what these bad guys are up to. And it seems like this one guy is funding terrorism, but... There's not any hard evidence to prove what's going on. And basically, it's all secondary. All of this shit that they're talking about, it's like you don't really give a shit what they're really dealing with. It's just like, you know, mindlessness. So we catch a glimpse of Helen talking to her coworker about how her marriage is in shambles and how Harry acts like he's saving the world, but he's just a salesman. Like, their marriage is clearly in trouble and Harry seemingly never has enough time for his family because of work. And there are obviously cultural differences, what with him being Austrian and whatnot. Just kidding. Whenever Arnold plays a character like this, it is literally never even touched on that he doesn't have an American accent at all. They don't they don't mention it. They don't point it out. They don't make jokes about it. It is just, he is an all-American guy with the, like, super thick Austrian accent, and that's all there is to it. So the humor in this movie so far hasn't really been doing it for me, by the way. I mean, they they tried some bits, like they're at the Omega Sector, whatever it's called, headquarters, and one of the other guys in Gib are like dancing, like doing the tango together. It's fucking stupid. I don't really enjoy that. And it's... I would have reworked a lot of these bits into something a little better quality, but I I don't know. A lot of people go for this. They, they find it funny, so I guess I can't really fault them. So Harry goes back to see the girl from Wayne's World. Her name is Juno Skinner, and she's seemingly up to no good. They kind of flirt with each other, and Harry leaves to regroup with his guys this dude named Aziz, who is actually the bad guy from The Living Daylights that I talked about, he's 
clearly the main bad guy in this movie. And he's in a back room and he slaps Juno around and he lets her know he means business. And she takes it remarkably well, actually. Harry promises Helen that he'll definitely be home when he promises. And then almost immediately, he has to deal with this guy tailing him and Gib, which will almost definitely make him late. You just know it's coming. Like, as soon as he promises that, as a viewer, you you should recognize, like, oh, he's telling her he's definitely not going to be late. Something is going to happen now that will make him late. So anyway, the bad guy Aziz is tailing them, and he's seemingly making a move to take Harry out or something. And it just seems like maybe you'd get, like, a lower-level enforcer to chase Harry as opposed to being the main bad guy and going out and chasing him for yourself. It, I, I, it doesn't compute for me. So Harry is now on foot trying to figure out what the deal is with these bad guys. And he's walking at night with the camera feed sunglasses on. And he's using the camera to watch behind him, which is a pretty slick move. I mean, it's like the cigarette pack is like the camera and the sunglasses are like the monitor that you can watch what the camera is seeing. And it's like, you know, he's watching behind him that way. And it's pretty neat. I don't know if I explained that. That's why I asked so, or why I mentioned that. So, so Gip calls Helen and lets her know that Harry's going to be doing his Harry thing and let her down by being late. Now, I don't remember much at this point, but I know a race with Harry on horseback is coming, which I'm sure will not be at all dumb. So Gib loses track of one of the men who is after Harry, and Harry is kind of getting his shit, the shit beat out of him in a public restroom now. And this is a pretty pivotal scene. So this guy is holding Harry down and trying to strangle him, and Harry reaches up and hits both sides of his head using his hands like a pair of cymbals. And... I'm not buying that shit at all. I don't think that's doing anything to that guy. So Harry removes one of those blower hand dryer things off the wall, and it's a little too fucking easy for him. And he hits the guy several times with it and puts the guy's head in the urinal and tells him to cool off, but that's not like a reference to anything, and it sounds more like something he'd say is Mr. Freeze. So anyway, I guess my point is, why can't people in action movies like these, just fucking do badass shit without ruining it by making some dipshit comment afterwards. I, I do feel like we've gotten away from this, but and thank goodness for that, but it's it just annoys me to watch these types of movies now. Gib leaves his vehicle to presumably go help Harry, and Gib doesn't give off a very strong field agent vibe to me. He's more like a behind-the-scenes type. So Aziz... It has Harry cornered in this bathroom and then he flees. So Harry goes after him and Aziz hops on a motorcycle and Harry commandeers a horse and starts chasing Aziz through the fucking park. And so he's riding this horse and Gib is trying to keep track of where he's going. And he ends up going through these buildings that are just full of people. And I've got a hot take at a little over 36 minutes in. It's this movie is dumb. It's trying way too hard to be funny. All of the gags are way too over the top. It's basically why I'm glad they don't make modern action movies like this anymore. I mean, you have all these stupid gags and comments that wouldn't work today. To me, it just seems like one of the worst things you can do in an action movie is to try and make it too comedic. Marvel has done this shit with fucking the Thor movies and things like that. And it really cost, it caused me to lose interest in those movies almost entirely. So the chase leads to this hotel and Harry is apologizing to everyone he disrupts with his indoor horse riding. And that would actually be funnier if he didn't apologize or say anything and people just reacted to a man on horseback in an unlikely place. So Aziz is still on a motorcycle and he rides up in an elevator on it and he's holding this woman hostage in there. Harry is still on the horse and he sees Aziz with his hostage and he rides up in a different elevator on the horse, of course. Yeah, right. I had to say it. Okay, so 
there's quite the stare down between Harry and Aziz in these two glass elevators as tension mounts while we're waiting for them to arrive at their floor, which is ultimately going to be the roof. So Aziz gets out of the elevator on the roof and gets away by jumping his motorcycle across to another building and landing in a swimming pool. And for some reason, despite having several chances, Harry doesn't just shoot Aziz before he jumps. Then, for some idiotic reason, Harry thinks to himself, hey, Aziz made that jump in a crotch rocket. I can do it on a fucking horse, for sure. Why not? But before the horse gets to the ledge, the horse freaks out and throws Harry right off of him. And Harry is hanging by the reins off the edge of this building. I, I Hopefully I have a screenshot that I'll be showing you right now. And he has to like coax the horse to pull him up. Then it's like this shit. Harry has to have this stupid fucking conversation with the horse scalding it and basically just it's like he's asking him what it what the horse was thinking and it's such a fucking terrible joke it's and none of this shit is fucking landing for me i'm really sorry guys i actually used to like this movie a lot and i know a lot of people do love it so Harry comes back home to find Helen asleep at the table with his uneaten birthday cake. And I have to say, if this is the way things have been in their life, Helen shouldn't even have a sliver of hope when it comes to this marriage. Like, she should be getting out of Dodge pretty quick. So they're trying to figure out what's going on with Aziz back at headquarters. And I think my struggle is that I've just seen too many movies, so I find myself really not paying attention to the real plot because I know the details ultimately won't matter and it's all about the showdown at the end of the movie. Harry goes to surprise Helen for lunch and finds out that she has some mystery man that she's been talking to before he makes his presence known. You know, Harry is just kind of playing low-key and not like announcing himself and listening to what's going on. So this devastates Harry naturally, and he leaves without ever announcing himself. And I'm not saying it's right for Helen to have some side action, but Harry clearly needs to be trying a little harder than he is. And I think this marriage is at the point of no return. So Gibb is trying to figure out what's going on. And when he does, he basically just says, welcome to the club of failed marriages and reads the situation all wrong. Harry gets angry with him and Gibbs and Gib breaks down and explains that it only makes sense that Helen was going to do this because of the way Harry treats her. At dinner that night, Harry mentions to Helen that he stopped by her place of employment and she wasn't there and she makes up this complete lie about what she was away doing and it only angers Harry more to hear what he knows is a lie. Harry is distracted at work and tells Gibb he wants to put a wiretap on Helen's phone. And Gibb points out that this is illegal, but they don't give a shit when they do it for anybody else. So why should they care now? So Harry listens to Helen's call with this mystery man played by Bill Paxton named Simon. He's a used car salesman. So this is clearly the most that Harry has paid attention to their marriage ever. And so Simon and Helen meet at a restaurant and Simon kind of like plays up like that he's a spy and that he's got all these top secret things going on. And he really takes credit for a lot of stuff that Harry did. And it's, you know, it's naturally going to piss Harry off even more. But it turns out that, you know, it's it's all a ruse, you know, but she doesn't know this. You you But you as the viewer find out that he is this used car salesman. So Harry poses as a customer looking to buy this classic Corvette that Simon tools around in. And so, you know, he comes onto the lot and Simon is there and he, you know, they they start talking and he really demonstrates to Harry what a piece of shit he is. Like they go on this test drive and he's talking about how he lies to women to get in their pants and how little he thinks of the husbands of the women that he gets involved with. And Harry loves to hear that, as you might imagine. So, of course, Simon starts talking about Helen and goes on about her physical attributes. And man, 
Do people have conversations like this with complete strangers? Do they really? I don't think, especially not now, I don't think they do. So he talks about how she's got the most incredible body and a pair of titties that make you want to stand up and beg for buttermilk and an ass like a 10-year-old boy. That last one is the, like, buttermilk, okay, fucking weird, but, like, ass like a 10-year-old boy. Wow. Okay. First off, saying someone has an ass like a 10-year-old boy is arguably the most unpleasant sexual analogy I've ever heard in a mainstream movie, and I've never heard anything close to something that bad in real life. Obviously, it sounds like a remark of a fucking pedophile, you know? That's what it sounds like to me. So Harry just turns into a balls-to-the-wall lunatic. He's basically funneling all these resources into investigating this Helen and Simon thing that's going on. Harry and Gibb find out Simon and Helen are supposed to be meeting somewhere, and Harry's pulling all of these agents off of these important cases and she meets Simon in his place, and it's it's like a trailer park, like mobile home. And Simon is laying it on pretty fucking thick, convincing Helen he's this secret agent type guy. Honestly, I love Jamie Lee Curtis as an actress. She really does well in a lot of different roles, including this one, honestly. If you ever want to watch something terrible with her, check out Perfect with her and John Travolta it is truly one of the most pointless fucking movies I've ever seen. I can't believe that they actually released it. But she looks great in it, despite not being super attracted to her normally. Like, I'm, I'm usually not a big Jamie Lee Curtis fan. Um, anywho, Harry makes the move to break into Simon's place with a bunch of dudes in tactical gear. And there's a helicopter spotlight. They take Simon and Helen in some vans and Helen goes to an interrogation room and we don't really see what actually becomes of Simon just yet. And so it's like this modulated voice in this interrogation room with Helen. And you know that Harry and Gibb are behind the glass, you know, the, the one way mirror, whatever it is. And Harry is asking her questions. They're trying to intimidate her. She, she tells the story of how she first met Simon and how he clearly laid the groundwork for his made-up spy life from the very beginning. And they ask her about her husband, Harry, and she paints a pretty bland picture of him. They ask her if she's ever fucked Simon, and she says no. And she's, she starts hitting the glass with a stool, and, like, she's gonna fucking break the glass. And she tearfully says that she does love her husband, and they tell her that she has to work for them in order to have the charges against her dropped so she doesn't have to go to prison, basically. They tell her that they will give her further instructions later, and then they take Simon and interrogate him and dangle him off of a fairly high ledge and ask him questions, and he admits he's a total sham and has a small dick, and then he immediately pisses himself. I don't know, like, the joke of, like, he has a small dick, like, why... Why does that need to be the joke? Like, why does why do why can't he just piss himself or something? I, I don't get it. But so they just abandon him there in the middle of nowhere and leave. And then at dinner, Helen gets, you know, she's really nervous and she gets a phone call with instructions to like dress up and go go to this hotel room or something. And so she goes to this hotel in this ritzy black dress and Gibb instructs her that she is a prostitute and she's supposed to be seeing a suspected arms dealer or some shit, I guess. I don't know what the fuck. She's obviously super nervous. And I'll be honest, it all seems like a bit much, but she puts on her nicest dress. And I mean, what if Harry just sat down and told her that he saw her with Simon and turned it into an adult conversation about what either of them could do to improve their marriage. Just a thought. Just kidding, guys. This is a 1990s action blockbuster, not some touchy-feely romance picture like The Notebook or Crazy Stupid Love. Get the fuck out of here with those thoughts. That Ryan Gosling, though, he's handsome as fuck, man. 
So anyway, Helen goes up to the hotel and Harry is sitting in this chair and the lighting is deliberately casting a shadow across his face so she won't know who he is. He uses a tape recorder with another man's voice recorded on it and he uses this to talk to her without giving himself away. Couple of things about this tape recorder. Okay, so first off, my broad overarching statement is that it wouldn't work even a little bit, okay? You might be thinking, yeah, I mean, what if she asks something that he doesn't readily have the answer to on the next part of the tape? What what would you do then? And that's one aspect of how problematic this tape recorder is. But if you lost track of where you were on this tape, it would be very obvious that something was up and that you were using like a tape recorder. But the big problem to me is this is a pretty standard looking tape recorder. And if something were to play the tape back in place of using their own voice, you know, somebody, if somebody played this tape recorder aloud, the quality coming out of that tape would be so limited. It would be, it's, it would sound like complete shit. It'd be like listening to a fucking answering machine like a voicemail or something it would not sound good it would not sound like a person was speaking in the room to you and like projecting and stuff it would just not fucking work at all so sure they show the guy recording in the booth earlier and they want to show that it's like really high quality recording but the recorder itself and the tape within would not sound anywhere near as good it wouldn't matter if if I've got a sh- if I've got an amazing microphone, but I've got a terrible stereo system to play the sound of my voice, that's going to sound like shit no matter how fucking good that microphone is. You get what I'm saying? Okay. So, Harry makes Helen strip down and she's like modified her dress to make it look more skimpy and stuff. And so she's stripping down, she's kind of doing a strip tease and dancing a bit and He tells her to close her eyes and they lay on the bed and using the, it's like he's using the tape recorder still. And it's like, how did he never, like, how did they never have him get found out for this? Anyway, it's all creepy. Like they're getting on this bed and he's like basically trying to like tell her who he is. And so he he walks over to her and he starts kissing and he's, she smashes the phone over his fucking head and kind of incapacitates him without initially realizing it's Harry. And then, as she realizes it's him, Aziz's men break in and kidnap the dysfunctional married couple and whisk them away. So Helen assumes the bad guys are there for her, but obviously Harry knows that they're there for him. The men take them to Juno and Harry has to act like he doesn't know Helen to try to get them to leave her alone. And this drives Helen absolutely fucking nuts. I'm not going to lie. I'm usually not super into her, but Jamie Lee Curtis actually looks pretty fucking great in the skimpy black dress she's got on. Like, it's pretty fucking good. So Juno takes Harry and Helen to Aziz by way of a private jet and they look at some Persian ruins and stuff. They reveal that they have a nuclear warhead and Aziz asks Harry if he knows what it is and Harry gives a bunch of terrible joke answers like an espresso machine or a snow cone maker. Yeah, okay. So Harry is forced to reveal who he really is to Helen and she punches him out for lying to him and... or. For lying to her, I should say. And I just don't feel like that's the right response here. Like, sure, you'd be pissed, but surely you have to realize what a dangerous situation you're in and how Harry is potentially your only ally here and punching him in the fucking face is doing nothing but harm to your situation. So Aziz's terrorist group, Crimson Jihad, is going to bomb one major city per week until their demands are met. We've got 45 minutes left in this movie and it seems like we should be in the last like 20, 25 minutes at most. And, but honestly, it's going to be, we're, we're going to get to the point like I do in my reviews where I, or my walkthroughs of the plot, I should say, where 
it's going to get more sweeping and and less detailed because less less detailed things are happening. It's it's broader strokes. So I do want to say that this chick that plays Juno, whatever her name was, I can't remember. I'll maybe I'll put it up on the screen and yeah, that that'll work. So she's a pretty solid femme fatale villain, and so Harry's still acting like he doesn't know Helen, and Juno has him and Helen tied up. And Juno leaves, and unless I miss something, I think they hit Harry with some truth serum or something because he's acting all goofy and he starts dispensing a lot of honesty. So they're they're going to torture them, and Harry tells the torturer guy how he's going to kill him and escape and how he's going to do it. And so he does, and it's pretty cool, I guess, but I have really tempered my expectations pretty heavily with this one. I'm not really assuming much good is going to happen. So maybe I'm just being generous. So it's just so weird. They don't make action movies corny like this anymore, except for, you know, like the, the expendables movies or like, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe the fast and the furious movies or probably the crank movies too. I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but, uh, you know what? Never mind. They do definitely still make, cheesy action movies like this. So this movie feels like a 90s Bond movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger in the lead role and everything he does and says comes off pretty fucking cartoonish and overly cocky to me and it just doesn't really seem to fucking work. So Harry and Helen are making their way, killing bad guys and getting to Aziz to fuck his shit up apparently. So in this movie, like many others, we get a ticking clock of 90 minutes for whatever reason. I'm not really sure they explained what the reasoning was on that, but it seems like the terrorists would just want to immediately attack. I don't think many of these groups were concerned with giving their enemies ample time to respond, even though they do have their demands and stuff. So they're not really technically a terrorist group because that's it's, it's kind of like the whole diehard thing like Hans Gruber's group is not a terrorist group because they're robbing the place they are you know doing a they're robbing them I mean so Helen shoots this Uzi and it's just so adorable guys it's clearly too much for her and she drops it down some stairs and it keeps firing and takes out a bunch of guys all by accident So Harry uses a gas pump nozzle as a makeshift flamethrower, and there's absolutely no way that that might be unrealistic or absurdly dangerous or what have you. So I can't really wrap my head around nuclear warhead sizes. I'm sure they come in different sizes. It's just like, I I don't understand their capabilities. Like, are bigger ones that much better, or am I used to, like, seeing older... Like, okay, in Superman from 1978... They have to be hauled by a semi because they're so big. But in 90s movies, they're like a fraction of the size and seemingly always pose an equal threat. Did they really just make them more compact over time? Or is that like a movie thing that they like started making them appear smaller over time? Like, does anybody know what the real size of an average nuclear warhead is? I'd love to fucking know. There's a giant explosion. You know, Harry's doing this flamethrower thing and... He has to jump in the water to save himself from the fire, and Helen is okay. And by the way, they figure out that they must be in the Florida Keys, because I'm sure that's going to be relevant somehow. And Juno apprehends Helen, and so when Juno just goes to just shoot her, she goes to shoot Helen, Aziz intervenes and says they might need a hostage, and I'm like, Yeah, I mean, I guess, but I feel like you've got enough leverage with the fucking warhead, bro. I don't think you need a hostage on top of that. So Harry meets up with Gib, and they go and try to find the bad guys and hopefully save Helen. I do remember a lot of imagery from this movie, specifically this bit where they're on the long bridge that crosses the water. I think I might have been on that bridge or one like it at some point early in my life because... It's very memorable. It's like a long fucking bridge, like 
30, 40 miles, maybe more. I don't remember exactly how long it was. So there's fighter jets and missiles and shit, and the terrorists are on the bridge and trucks, and Harry and company are in the air and helicopters. And so Juno and Helen fight with a gun in the back of this limo, and the driver gets shot, so naturally things are going haywire. They decide to lower Harry down with the helicopter to save Helen because she's heading for this bridge that is out, you know, like the there's a spot in the bridge that is damaged or broken or whatever you want to say. There's this big struggle before they like for Harry to save Helen and it's natural. And, you know, Juno dies and Helen and Harry seemingly reconcile and make out while what I guess is a nuclear explosion is going on in the background. Like you can see the mushroom cloud. Don't know what that's all about. So, Talk about a fucking false ending, though. Like, I thought that this was the way it ended. I, I I thought for sure it was fucking over. But, oh, no, the terrorists have Dana. And in case you forgot who Dana is, that's Harry and Helen's daughter. And she's played by Eliza Dushku. And so now Harry has to go save her from wherever she's being held. So he heads off in a fucking fighter jet that he seemingly doesn't remember how to operate. The name of the terrorist group is Crimson Jihad, and that sounds like a local theater production of a play about Al-Qaeda to me. It just, it sounds like a cheesy name for a group. So the terrorists let this news crew up into the building where they're at, and it's not a finished building. It's still under construction. I don't know why terrorists would allow the press to be there. I mean, I guess getting their message out, but like, it doesn't seem like their MO. It seems like they would like deliver a tape to the media for them to broadcast it and leave it at that, not let them get close and all that stuff. So one of the people, one of the members of the press is one of the people on Harry and Gibbs team. And so, you know, he's got something going. He's trying to make something happen with getting Dana out of there. And Aziz is talking to the camera, you know, they're interviewing him and he notices that the key is gone and it's the only way he can detonate this bomb, right? And so obviously Dana fucking took it and she ran and Harry's going to come up and try to save Dana while she's walking out onto this fucking crane being pursued by Aziz and Dana pisses off Aziz by calling him a wacko and honestly, people like this would not have such thin skin in movies like they should they shouldn't but they frequently do and it's like why would he give a shit what a 14 year old says about him like he would be fucking above that so harry comes in the jet and he hovers beneath dana and tells her to jump down but she's in too much shock for all that and it's also not the safest idea so there's this big exciting standoff where he has to save Dana and defeat Aziz. And I've never been so painfully aware of such a large amount of blue screen being used in a sequence. And actually, when I went back to the stills, like I was going through making, uh, like downloading images from this movie to use in this episode, like I, I maybe it wasn't as bad as I was thinking it was. It just, it seemed bad. So Aziz is on Harry's fighter and he finds his gun and he threatens to kill Dana if Harry doesn't put them down. And Harry just tilts the whole jet and Aziz falls. But he gets caught on one of the jet's missiles. And Harry says, you're fired. And launches the missile, killing Aziz when the missile collided with the building. And I know what you're thinking. Was that a callback to something from earlier in the movie? And the answer is, no, I don't believe so. I don't think that that was actually something that was said earlier in the movie and they were calling back to it. That he just said, you're fired and that's it. So then we're back with a happy family and I really don't think this bit, I, I, I don't like it. It's not very good. It, it's basically the only way that they could end this movie. And it's essentially like now Helen and Harry are both secret agents together and they run into Simon at this party and intimidate him and he pisses himself again 
And it's like the last, you know, that was like the last time we saw him. So Harry and Helen dance and they even do that old bit where like Helen has a rose in her mouth, like, like biting a rose. I don't, I don't know why that's a thing. I'm sure there's a story behind why people do that. So then we roll credits while Gib is trying to convince them to stop dancing and get back to work. Okay, so praise for this movie. Jamie Lee Curtis is fucking stupendous, as always. There's some cool 1994 effects on display here. If you, you know, if you look at it through that lens, it's pretty fucking solid. Charlton Heston had one eye, and he didn't turn out to be the bad guy that we know of. And it's a cool film to look at. There's a lot of great cinematography on screen. I like that. My criticism is the humor is fucking atrocious. Pretty much all of it falls flat for me. And the entire movie feels very dated. And like I should have left it in the past with mostly fond memories. Like I seem to remember having liked this movie. So another thing I'll say for criticism is Tom Arnold should never have gotten famous for any reason whatsoever. I don't know what his appeal is. I don't think he's particularly funny and that seems to be his shtick. So, all right. So we've got some trivia. Um, when Harry tells Gib that Helen is having an affair, Gib tells a story about his second wife taking everything when she left him, even the ice cube trays from the freezer. This is a direct reference to Tom Arnold's divorce from Roseanne Barr that was happening at the same time as this movie was going on. She reported to have taken his ice cube trays when she left him as well. And Arnold told the story to James Cameron on set while saying, what kind of sick bitch takes the ice cube trays out of the freezer? Cameron thought that this line was hilarious and incorporated it into the film. Yeah, it was... It was pretty funny, Tom. Okay, so Arnold Schwarzenegger had a near-fatal accident on set during the horse riding scene when his horse got startled and ran out of control. Schwarzenegger managed to slide off of his horse, but did this near a 30-foot drop-off. His personal stuntman saw what happened and was able to grab him before he went over the edge. Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't supposed to drop the tape recorder. James Cameron liked it and kept it in. When asked during an interview whether his wife was bothered by him sitting there watching Jamie Lee Curtis strip, Arnold Schwarzenegger said that she asked him about it and he assured her, Honey, I hate the devil a minute of it. I'm sorry, that's a really bad Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, this is the first movie to have a production budget of 100 million, and this made it the most expensive movie at the time, breaking the record of James Cameron's previous movie, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, from 1991. It would lose this record the next year to Waterworld from 1995. The soundstage where they shot the Harrier scale model was the largest 180 degrees green screen background ever built. Jamie Lee Curtis said that in his contract, Arnold Schwarzenegger gets top billing, then the title, then it would have said starring Jamie Lee Curtis, but when Cameron finished editing the film, he saw that the film was really a domestic epic. It's a film about marriage. So James Cameron phoned Arnold Schwarzenegger and asked him if it would be okay to put Jamie Lee Curtis's name before the title, to which Arnold Schwarzenegger immediately agreed. In the world of show business, as Jamie Lee Curtis said, the credit is such a coveted, negotiable commodity that for Arnold Schwarzenegger to give her billing before the title was a real mensch move on his part. Okay, so a sequel to True Lies was Once in the Works, which would have reunited the principal cast and director James Cameron. A script was even ready for the sequel, and had the movie been made, it would have been released sometime in 2002. This was eventually scrapped, or at least indefinitely shelved due to script problems, as well as the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Cameron even said in an interview that he dropped his sequel plans because in this day and age, terrorism just isn't funny anymore. And it's like, 
was it really funny before, James? Was it? Anyway, Arnold Schwarzenegger did a lot of his own horseback riding. He says that he couldn't have done it without his riding experience on the Conan movies. Booyah. I've never seen the Conan movies. Don't really want to. I don't think they're my kinds of movies. But anyway, on to info and ratings. We have a runtime of 141 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $115 million. Opening weekend, $25.9 million. Worldwide gross, $378.9 million. IMDb rating, 7.3. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 70%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 76%. Personal rating, 2.5 out of 5 stars. I know, I know, it has not stood the test of time for me. And I know a lot of people would disagree that it, it doesn't age well. Like, they probably think it's still good. I, I probably would have rated this at least a 4 out of 5 way back when. Not anymore. I'm just, I, I don't I don't see it. I, I'm not getting it coming through. So anyway, I guess uh, I'm, I'm trying out these new these new video episodes and I'm already realizing I definitely need to work on the length of time I'm recording. I can probably cut a bunch of shit out, honestly. And, um, yeah, just, uh, let me know if you have any, uh, requests or comments or anything like that. And I will certainly look into them and see if I can do what you, you ask. So, um, I'm also, I, I, I'm going to put out a graphic probably well before this comes out, but like the big plan is to make shorter episodes, only do one movie and essentially just like do a lot of the, the video editing. You know, I'm not just going to put out a straight video with no nothing on it. You know, I mean, I, I want to have animations. I want to have things on the screen to look at other than that because it's pointless to have a fucking video podcast if you don't. So, all right, everyone. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews artwork, theme music, and podcast are written, performed, recorded, engineered, directed, and produced by Brandon Griffiths in association with Brandon at Random Reviews Entertainment. Mm-hmm.